I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. Hi, I'm Ricky Lake. I'm Dr. Aaron Eugwin McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. What's up, fam? This is episode 84 of the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. I welcomed a, uh, a mentor of mine. I don't think he would realize that he's a mentor of mine, but Stephen Jenkinson is a prolific writer. I have him on like a pedestal with people like Charles Eisenstein, Orland Bishop, these incredibly thoughtful, uh, dare I say provocative thinkers and writers. And Stephen comes from the world of palliative care. He was a social worker in palliative care up in Ontario he left the death trade, which he and I kind of had a chuckle about, where we were kind of selling people on the idea of death and dying and selling them pharmaceuticals and interventions or not doing these interventions. And the way that we learn how to use that language can be very helpful for families. But it's all a matter of like sort of getting them to lean into the this medicalized way of dying in our nation. And, and I found him through his talk on this. And I don't want to put words in his mouth, but in our conversations around this work in palliative care, he and I see eye to eye on a lot of things. Let's just leave it at that. Um, he's the author of a variety of books, and I'll tell you about those in a second. First, let me just tell you about our sponsors for the episode. Fit for Birth is an online course program, and at getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, you can save 20% on all of their courses. They provide pregnancy and postpartum specific exercise and nutrition, coaching and counseling. And if you think about how we apply exercise, cold tubs, sauna, supplements, you name it, we all we apply it to everybody as if everybody's the same. But if you're pregnant and postpartum, you require specific coaching on nutrition and exercise. So at getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, you'll see that there's a, if you're a pregnant postpartum woman, you can be linked in with a fit for birth professional in order to get that coaching. Or if you're a coach out there, and you've been scratching your head and kind of pussyfooting around the conversation around, you know, uh, pregnancy and postpartum and, and how your work as a fitness or a health coach might play into that. And you might be afraid to go into those waters because it, it, you probably are smart like me. You realize, oh my gosh, this requires specific fine tuning to the programming because you know that there are so many physiologic changes that happen, not just during the menstrual cycle, but in pregnancy especially. And that's why at Fit for Birth, they're doing this. So as a coach, you can go there, you can deepen your toolkit and become better as a coach and, 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 and refine your skills so that you're one of the few people out there that can say, I am a Fit for Birth professional and I have the specific skills and attributes to help you coach, to help coach you on, on exercise in particular, but also nutrition on your pregnancy and postpartum journey. So to get, go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved to save 20% on anything that James Goodlatte and his team at Fit for Birth have to offer. Bioptimizers is our other sponsor. Bioptimizers is a company that I hold near and dear. I've got bottles and bottles of Bioptimizers products all over my house. We use it all the time. Like we go to Chipotle once in a while and get a big burrito. 
And I try to make it as low glycemic as possible, but man, are they good. And I can say every single time afterwards that it's like, oh man, I am. this is going to take a while to digest. I'm going to start feeling wacky because I'm not used to taking such a big glycemic hit. So I'll pop two of their blood sugar um, capsules as well as their mass signs. And sometimes I'll even add a little bit of HCL. Bioptimizers makes one of the best supplement lines on the planet. And I know the guy who makes it, who started this, Wade Lightheart, he's a good friend of mine. We met through Paul Check. And this guy, is he's really done his homework. And they have a special offer right now for uh, listeners of the show. If you're considering diet, hydration, um, movement, breathing, mindset, and sleep as six critical principles to keeping yourself healthy before, during, and after pregnancy through your menopausal transition, you're probably... Of those, if I had to guess, you're probably neglecting sleep the most, especially if you're a young parent like me. And if you lay awake, kind of tossing and turning in bed more frequently than you would like, and then you wake up the next day not feeling totally charged, and your kids need you, and your wife needs you, and, and it, it's, just, it's just hard to be a young parent. Sleep is critical. But if you can't fall asleep and you're not getting restful sleep, then what to do? Here's what you do. You go and buy some magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers. Take two capsules 30 to 45 minutes before bed with a tall glass of water. And let me know how you feel. I guarantee you're going to feel better in the morning than you did without it. It's not going to be the entire picture, perhaps, or maybe it will be. But there are seven types of magnesium included, which is unlike any other magnesium product on the planet. So for a limited time, they're also going to throw some extra freebies, which I mentioned at the beginning of this ad. If you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn, I'll link it in the show description. You're going to go there. Code BELOVED10 will be automatically applied if you purchase through that site. And if you get three bottles or more, you're going to get some extra goodies. For three bottles or more, you're going to get Masszymes and you're going to get P3OM. P3OM is the Navy SEAL of probiotics. And Masszymes helps digest, break down the food, maximize nutrient absorption from your meals. If you get five bottles of Mag Breakthrough, and, and I have like 10 bottles in my house at all times because I'm taking it and my family's taking it as frequently as we need it. So you want to have a pl- you know plenty on hand. If you buy five bottles, they're going to throw in, in addition to the P3OM and the Masszymes, you're also going to get a bottle of their HCL Breakthrough. People who have reflux, they have uh, reflux, re- unre- undigested food regurgitates into the esophagus, or they get that heartburny feeling. Your doctor will say, block the acid. That doesn't fix the problem. What you need is to actually add acid in order to f- sort of expedite the digestion, especially of the proteins and some of those dense, long-chain polysaccharides, etc., in your diet. So you add some di- some some HCL. It speeds up the digestion process in the stomach so that instead of it being regurgitated up into your esophagus, causing heartburn and reflux symptoms, it goes into the duodenum so the rest of your, your intestines can do the job. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn. Get as many bottles as you can because you're going to get a whole bunch of freebies to try on the house, on, on Bioptimizer's house. <laughs> um, I can't recommend Bioptimizer's enough. Please go check them out. And then lastly, Organifi is back as a... Uh, sponsor of the show. And I couldn't be happier because I still use Organifi on a daily basis. I uh, Recently, my friends Chase and Mimi over at the Medicine Podcast, they sent me a sample of their new Mushy Love, which by the way, I also have a discount for discount code for. It's Beloved10. You can go to my website, belovedholistics.com slash shop, and you'll find all my discount codes for all these companies. But this product is amazing. It has functional mushrooms. It's got cinnamon tree, uh, cinnamon bark. It's got um, some coconut oil in it etc. Well, that alone is amazing. 
It helps your immune system, your endocrine system, your gut. If you put a scoop of that in with a scoop of Organifi's vanilla protein, you now have a snickerdoodle post-workout protein shake. So Organifi's vanilla protein has 20 grams of plant-based protein from a variety of seeds and in other plant sources. They add in a bunch of digestive enzymes to help you break this stuff down. And you don't get that bloaty feeling. You don't get that like kind of heavy, like Ugh, protein shake feeling. You take it in, your body absorbs it. It tastes delicious. And you never look back. That's as simple as it is. I know Drew Canoli. He's the owner, the guy who found the entire Organifi empire. And he's an amazingly good guy. He puts his heart and soul into these products. And I, it's super, I feel super privileged to be able to support him. So go to Organifi.com slash beloved. And you can save on their vanilla protein, their red juice, their green juice, their gold juice. They've got an assortment of amazing, amazing products. And I don't use a lot of supplements. The few supplements I use are actually from Bioptimizers and Organifi, which is, which is why I feel so honored to have them as, as uh, supporters of the Holistic OBGYN podcast. So take advantage of those deals, guys. My guest today, Stephen Jenkinson, has written a number of books. The book that I most gravitated towards was Die Wise. He really confronts the notion Death is something to be, to be feared. Of course we all fear it. It's not only that. It's actually a, an incredible opportunity to integrate the entire story that preceded our death. And since we don't get a vote as to whether or not we die, why not make the best of the time we have now in order to integrate this story to the maximum benefit? But if we instead spend all of our energy running from mortality, then we don't take the opportunity and honor the privilege of integrating our story that may be way, way less than we want. But again, we didn't get a vote as to how much time we have here. We were gifted a body. And at some point, we have to say goodbye to that body and everybody who loves this body. Die Wise does that beautifully. He's got come of age, a generation's worth. He's also the uh, founder of Orphan Wisdom School. Everything can be found at orphanwisdom.com. And I'd be, I'd be um, remiss if I didn't mention that he has a new book coming out that he co-authored with Kimberly Ann Johnson, who you can find on Instagram. Her website's KimberlyAnnJohnson.com. I've been following her for, for quite some time. They have combined their efforts to make a new book, a brand new book called Reckoning. This is really about what is happening as we are experiencing the changing of generations. You know, we have this, this strange notion that when you get old and you're not able to produce anymore, that suddenly now you get relegated to one of these nursing homes or something like that. But what happened to elderhood? What happened to, to honoring the stages of life? So here's how the little blurb here um, on his website goes. Reckoning came on. A younger woman, no longer young, author and teacher in her own right, sends a note in late fall 2021 to someone she doesn't know. An older man, not yet old, author too, an activist of some kind. She proposes a talk she'll promote. Her purpose, to wonder about what is happening to the moorings of her generation. Whole person heartbreak ensues, prompting another session, the next evening. As winter comes on, they do five more. By then, something is born of their wonder. They consider the transcripts, they write a letter to each other. Blessings of a kind, blessings of a kind. Reckoning is what they call it. Reckoning is the cultural ciphering of Stephen Jenkinson and Kimberly Ann Johnson. It's an unguarded, sober meeting with spirit work, elderhood, grief and plague, and building culture in a me-first era to be tried at home with companions. This is a, a, uh, a reckoning indeed. This is a, a, a transcription 
that really, I think, gets to the heart of why am I here? What is my purpose and, and why am I here? And where am I going? Where have I come from? These are the big questions of our time. And when we only consider ourselves and not consider our elders, our children, our community, our neighbors, instead silo ourselves off into four walls with a roof, we miss out on the richness of life, which of course has been extra tricky to talk about over these past couple years with the pandemic. So, All right. It was a, a real pleasure to have my mentor, Stephen Jenkinson, on the show. I hope you guys enjoy. Let's get into it. Stephen, welcome. Tell me, what, what type of tea are you drinking this morning? It's early for you, for both of us. Yeah, that's insanely oct- high-octane matcha tea. <laughs> Interesting story about matcha. I heard about matcha when I was in fellowship in, in UC San Diego for hospice and palliative care, and I heard it was all the rage. And I, I got like the real fancy matcha, thinking like that was the right thing to do. And it was probably the high-octane stuff, but I, I had it on an empty stomach. And by the time I left the parking lot, I opened the door of the car and just vomited green everywhere. Like it hit like this massive histamine response in my stomach. That's some, that's some powerful stuff, the matcha. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Starting things off fresh. <laughs> fresh. I got a nice visual now. Yeah, right, right. Well, Stephen, thank you for, for being here with me today. As I told you as before we started recording, I'm an OBGYN and a hospice doc. I've stepped completely out of the conventional model for a lot of the reasons that I think you've elaborated very clearly in a lot of your you know, interviews you've done and, and writings. And I won't even get into that because I know our time is short, but just let me get the niceties out of the way, the pleasantries. Your, your work has been very inspiring to me. And, and as I went through my work in hospice and palliative care, I started bringing that experience and a lot of the things that I resonated with what you've said into my care of women who are giving birth, because there's this piece, this mortality piece that is perhaps underappreciated, you know, and, uh, and, and I think childbirth and death have, I see them as two sides of the same coin now that I've sat with so many birthing women and dying people. And, um, so I think the the crux of the conversation today is I'd like to really get into maybe developing some language of, of this, you know, I'm using air quotes on my end loss, but let's call it what it is language of death as it pertains to childbirth, especially in the grieving process. So, you know, for me personally, I had a really hard time using the word death and dying as many doctors do, you know, it's sure. this thing we run as fast as we can away from. And you brought it up in a, a, an interview I listened to a while back, you know, where, where somebody called you out at a conference and they said, you know, what gives you the right to be so blunt about death and dying? <laughs> direct. I think direct was the word they used. Direct. Yeah, direct. Right. And, and, and you said something like, well, well, what gives you the right to be so indirect in, in, right. you know, in, in a world that is desperate for candor? So, yeah. so let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how this might play into uh, maybe a, a, the lack of ritual and ceremony in, in everything that, that birth entails, how could we apply this language that you've developed around death and dying to, let's say, the loss of a newborn or a loss of a mother whose now partner has to take care of this newborn? Let's kind of just start there and we'll, we'll let the conversation unfold. Okay. Well, in no particular order, first of all, I wouldn't agree that the newborn is lost because they die. Yeah. Right. And this is part of the conversation or part of the language that you've been pointing to Hmm. these aren't synonyms so if we just i mean let me let me climb down from the citadel just long enough (laughs) on the matter to suggest you know there are reasons that we resort to euphemisms 
It's not because nobody knows how to talk for, for crying out loud. Although I must say, when I was in the death trade and I was uh, associate professor of a big time medical school, there was never any talk about talk. Hmm. I, I can't recall it, to be honest with you. There was a kind of, you, if you want to call it a shared understanding, it was a kind of mauling really of the, of the responsibility to be lucid. That's what it really was. But it, there was a cabal, obviously, and the cabal was very persuaded on the matter of compassion. Hmm. They had the market cornered on compassion. And the more aversive your language was, the more compassionate you were. Right. This is, this is the wildest kind of hmm. math to do, that when everybody's lost in the ozone and, and nobody has a language that locates anyone in the, in the here and now, this is deemed to be the best possible outcome of an unfortunate circumstance. Hmm. Well, I mean, if, if you parented according to that principle, or if you drove your car according to that principle, what would you be? Um, dangerous would be right up there and other yeah. things besides. No. So, so then, as, as I was wont to do at the time, it's, I think it behooves you not to leap into the brave new world of, of a better language, but to take a little time to wonder what is so persuasive about the malingering and the truancy of the language that was used when I was in the trade. I mean, let me allow the distinct possibility that things have got better since, but I'd be shocked. But I mean, maybe. But, but what's the draw of a language so imprecise and obscurantist that uh, we take some comfort in that lostness? Okay, so now you're somewhere. When, if you can formulate a question like this that's rooted in what you've seen, especially what you haven't heard, because that was the dilemma I was in. Mm. I, was, I came as an outsider. I was in my 40s by the time I joined the the trade number one, I was kind of talked into it. Not that I'm not pleased that that's what happened, but certainly was not something I was pursuing. In fact, I didn't know there was such a thing as a specialty called taking care of dying people. <laughs> I had to be introduced to the, the whole crazy and sordid affair. One of the things that came to me very early on was um, that all the language was imported. The ones that, the language that was being used came from elsewhere. A lot of it came from psychology, but none of these people are qualified psychological practitioners. Right. right. I mean, they, in a pinch, they imagine themselves to be, frankly, but they weren't from the point of view simply of training. So, I mean, if I was using medical language, you know, harem scarum with you mm -hmm. now, at some point you start, you'd, you'd be obliged to say, at least to yourself, if not to me, uh, do you have a license for this kind of talk? <laughs> so to speak, right? Yeah. But nobody ever wondered about that at the psychological level. Apparently, we're all imminently qualified to speak psychologically about the dynamics of dying with, uh, with, no, with no training, but lots of encouragement on mm. the matter, you mm -hmm. see? So there's one. Two, how, where did the calculation come from that the, that the vaguer you are, the kinder you are, as I said earlier? Well, there's something about readiness that's mm. mobilizing this kind of pseudo-compassion. I heard it a million times. I'm sure you've heard it a million times. Yeah. It goes like this. You know, it's all well and good what you're talking about, they would say to me. But timing is everything. Okay, timing is God's middle name. I'll agree with you there. But what, do you, what are you warning me against? 
Oh, prematurity. And by definition, it was premature to talk to dying people in North America about their dying. By definition, mm-hmm. it was too soon in the, in the, in the arc of things. But how can you tell? Well, they didn't welcome the conversation. Wait, are you telling me that the disinclination of the customer group or the consumer group to, to engage the material is all the guidance you need as to when to right. forward material? Right. Is that what you're telling me? The answer is absolutely that's what we're telling you. But wait, what kind of business are we in then? <laughs> and the answer is painfully obvious. We're in the customer satisfaction business the way virtually every other service provider is. Yeah. And how do you know that you've done the right thing? The answer is the customer satisfied. But in a death phobic culture that sets up a, a degree of expectation that, that you'll never overcome. Mm. Right. So if, if you get the signal from the from the patient, the reluctantly dying patient, the w- one who's reluctant to self-identify in these terms, then then the message comes through to you loud and clear that they have to be ready to have the conversation with you. But nobody ever asked, in my presence at least, well, how are they supposed to get ready? Mm. If, if we obey their disinclination, what are we asking of them in terms of this readiness, this this holy grail called they're finally there and they can have the conversation Yeah, and they're quote open to it. They had no obligation in my practice to be open to dying or to talking about dying. My job was to proceed minus the openness, Yeah, their job, their job. And they did have a job was to imagine the distinct possibility that this dying was not actually theirs, that it was entrusted to them. But, it, but not as a possession. Hmm. Why? Because the outcome, all the every outcome of their dying was going to accrue to the living, not to them. Hmm. And so if there's a degree of love to be found anywhere in the operation, yeah. if there's a family tie anywhere, if there's a matrimonial link, et cetera, et cetera, if all these things are there and they almost always were, then you got to translate what love means now. And it can't be what it was. Hmm. You know, what it was was preservation, right? And certainly in the, in the practice area that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Preservation was the order of the day. That's, that's what Parenting 101 was, that everybody gets through. Everybody makes it through, etc. And if you, if you fail to rescue your loved one, you somehow haven't loved, what, accurately enough? Mm. Or your timing wasn't good? Or... You didn't or do it right. It or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can see where, and it, and it's a it's a grim calculus that ensues from that. So, this is me saying to you that I was obliged to craft a language that didn't it didn't exist in practice. It was certainly available. I mean, I didn't invent anything, but I I engaged the language, the poverty of the language, as I heard it unfold, and uh, attempted to. Uh, to resuscitate the oblig- the moral obligation that we practitioners had to em- employ a language where the realities of dying were available to the dying people, mm. which is a lot different than, quote, rubbing their face in it, which is the challenge and the charge that I got routinely, that if they're not ready, then somehow you're forcing them. Well, what do you mean somehow? Uh, of course you're forcing them. And at, it's no different than all the other treatment modalities that are, you know, acutely uncomfortable physically and even 
kind of at, at the level of, of your dreamscape, the invasiveness and so on. It's just, I mean, at some level, all these things are horrifying, but we don't say, you know, uh, are you ready for it? You're obliged to be ready. You're obliged to welcome this. I mean, maybe you're supposed to sign off on the, on the chart, but mm. beyond that, we don't, we don't oblige people to be amenable to the interventions that we propose physically. And yet at the level you and I are talking about now, we relied upon that. And I would say that constitutes a kind of cowardice in mm. the trade that amounted to malpractice. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I just interviewed this midwife. She's this incredible woman, Christine Laria, who was a midwife here in the States for 20 years, then went abroad and started working with Doctors Without Borders and was in Bolivia and South Sudan and Bangladesh. And she told a couple stories in South Sudan about losing a mom, you know, and um, being a temporary mother to this baby that was born and is now orphaned. Because in South Sudan, the way that the cultural, this sort of cultural establishment presumes that a baby without a mother is going to pass away. It's it's not perhaps not like, you know, in some ways the way that we we care for kids in the in North America, although that some people may disagree with that actually. And um and then she also told stories about the baby passing away like born at 28 weeks, way too, you know, way too early without high-level NICU care. And the mother being this 17-year-old who got pregnant unintended or un, unwanted intercourse whatever it was, this baby's dying, actively dying, taking those little agonal breaths that babies do, that, that even adults do at the very end, and trying to still give this baby little bits of colostrum mm-hmm. and just loving this baby. And, and what we kind of manifested and what unfolded in our conversation, which was very intense conversation, as you can imagine, was that, you know, we go our entire hundred year lifespan, perhaps as a human being, and a big portion of that is running away from love. It's running away from these types of conversations until the very moment when somebody like you or me sort of obligates them to talk about it. Well, this little baby maybe lived seven hours and for those seven hours received unconditional love from their mother and how beautiful that actually could be. Instead, we, we flip it and we, we talk about the loss and how unfortunate that the baby only had a thing the point. And when I was in residency, before I got into fellowship in hospice and palliative care, but I knew I wanted to do this work, there was a woman who came in, she was 32 weeks, had her baby, the baby was was born and all the king's horses and all the king's men were there to try to keep this baby alive at, at 32 weeks, but they couldn't get a tube in the throat, you know, these breathing tubes that we'd like to put in to artificially ventilate. So they rushed the baby to the operating room and the mother, we brought her over shortly after and they found after calling up all the surgeons, the pediatric surgeons and everything, there was a, an, the airway was missing. It was a congenital malformation. There's no way that this baby could survive. Right. So they were bagging, you know, like through a hole in the, in the sure. main stem bronchi and everybody's, you know, realizes what's going on here. Nobody wants to tell the mother, your little girl's going to die. She is dying as we all are, but you're, 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 the time frame here is very short. And she says, well, I just want to hold her. And she holds her and she takes her final breaths and passes away. And while this is happening, the entire staff, there had to be 20 people in the room. And I was like the chief resident. So I was kind of the one in charge, sort of pseudo in charge. Yeah. And the um, everybody was adjusting blood pressure cuffs and counting their instruments and clicking away on the computers and the doors swinging open. And then eventually, and it was more expletive than I'm going to say, well, I'll just say it because it's my show. Can you guys just leave us the fuck alone? And you could hear a pin drop, Stephen. 
So everybody left except for me and one of the nurses as this little baby dies in her arms. You know, when, when, we're, when we talk about the obligation of presenting a person with this, with a construct around death and dying, like let's, let's give them a, a platform permission to talk about this thing that they've probably wanted to talk about. How can we, you know, if it was, if it was an adult dying, somehow that seems easier than when it's a baby dying and there's a, a woman and her partner who are going to be mourning the loss what would you, you know? What would you have done in that moment? What would you like? What what language is there? Language that we should be applying to this? Because I don't think you know. If we're bad at at ninety five year old getting the gift of pneumonia dying, if we struggle with that, we really struggle with the death of a baby. So what is that? What, what what's conjuring up? What's coming to you when you hear stories like this? Well, I'm I'm glad I'm not in the business anymore. <laughs> yeah. For one, that's certainly there. Uh, I don't say that with any rancor. I mean, genuinely, there's only so many fits of insanity that you engage in lucidly that you can bear, I think. And some part of you can't bear it anymore. You may continue. You know, your kid has to go to private school, whatever whatever the mandate is. Hmm. But I'm not sure that you can continue in the full-throatedness of your humanity. That's one thing that occurs to me. But here's another one more to the, germane to the point you're making, I think. Somehow it's natural for old people to die. Hmm. Now, in Nor- Anglo-North America, old people don't die, quote, naturally, by any real real standard of the term natural. Hmm. Okay, yeah. But still, as a kind of sort of ill-considered social construct, people, <clears throat> excuse me again, people will say that. Hmm. Well, you know, they had, a, they had a long life. What does that mean? Long enough? Right. That's that's the condition that you must yes, meet in order to. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Has it been long enough? Is there such a thing as too long? Well, there's certain, certainly such a thing as prolongation. So maybe by any standard, yes, there's such a thing. Is there such a thing as not long enough? Which is what you're asking me about. Yeah. And the answer, sadly, is yes. There's there's such a thing as a life that's not long enough lived. Mm. So this is my reference to this is what I've referred to what I call the book of supposed to. <laughs> There's a book. Nobody's ever seen it, but we can quote it chapter and verse more faithfully than that other book that people, you know, some people can quote chapter and verse. The book of supposed to, everybody has recourse to where you give them half a chance. <clears throat> and one of the things on page one of the book of supposed to. Is, uh, is it turns out many of the entries there are book of not supposed to's and kids uh, are not supposed to die, period. Mm-hmm. There's no qualification. Nobody says kids aren't supposed to die. What in Peru, <laughs> in, in Swaziland? What, what, I mean, give it some kind of context. Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. Kids are not supposed to die by what standard? Well, <clears throat> it's not natural. Well, wait. <laughs> Wait a second. If you're born without a trachea, you're probably going to die. Mm-hmm. How's that unnatural? So you you realize that there's a there's a pernicious kind of tyranny that floats in and out of our discussion, our assumption about what constitutes the natural order of things, and it's uh it's resolute. <clears throat> and excuse me, last time in Anglo North America at least, it's um. It's never questioned. In my presence, I never heard it wondered about. So I, at the risk of commandeering the circumstance, let me tell you a story. Yeah. True story really happened. You're going to recognize the, the, the vehemence and the vibe of this. 
the child's seven years old, she has leukemia. It's been hospitalized basically because can't keep the food down, et cetera. And is trying to get stabilized to be sent back home again, to be admitted at least a couple more times. And you know how that goes. Yeah. Okay. So the family's down in the family room. I get the call. Family's not quote, not doing well. <laughs> well, s- save your breath. Of course they're not doing well, but here's a mandate. Isn't there supposed to be doing well? How do you propose that they do well? <laughs> well, we know it's there. Okay. Yeah. We know there's a standard of behavior. These people are supposed to behave. That's a good word for it. So anyway, in I go, and I'm there seven seconds, and I know what it is. Nobody tells me, but, you know, hopefully you're smart enough, you know what you're looking at. Hmm. And this is what it was, that the principal cause of the suffering of the family was not the imminent death of their seven-year-old. The principal cause of their suffering was something no one had ever said out loud and everybody knew, which was that the child was not going to get to live a full life. Right. Quote, quote, there's the phrase. Right. right. Full life. Now, this is seven, seven years. It could be seven minutes. And the dynamic is basically the same. Hmm. Okay. So, so what did you do? This is what I did. I said it. I said, you know, hard as it is that she's dying. The worst thing by far is that she doesn't get to live a full life. And they, they just nodded just as you're doing now. Hmm. They just, they didn't accommodate themselves to what I said. They finally found themselves to be recognized in what I said. Yeah. Now somebody finally gets it. This is the real criminality of the situation. Yeah. And that's the vision. It's criminal. Yeah. Something fundamentally is not just off course. It's wrong. It's categorically wrong. Okay. Hmm. So something's got to be done and it, and it requires a drastic kind of intervention. So I said, um, let's do this. Let's go down to a room now and let's ask her, ask her what let's ask her if she's had a full life. Now they look at me like I'm an apparition from some monstrous malpractice suit. You know, when I say such, such a thing, and I, I acknowledge this to them openly. And I said, way too strong. So, I mean, who could do it, right? And the answer is, of all the people in the room here right now, I could do it. Mm. I, got the, I got no skin in the game. I can do it. So let me go down and ask her. And I'll come back and I'll tell you what she said. Is that good? And they all agreed. And, of course, they probably had their discussion about me when I left. But down I went, <coughs> having no idea how this was going to go. But I was going to do exactly what I promised. I walk into the room. I sit down, not across from her. You know, th- that seating arrangement is so important, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. You look off in the general direction that she's looking off in. Kind of you're sitting at 45 degrees, looking off into the great middle distance. And she's well guarded against your intrusion, understandably. So and I, so I say, well, I was just with your uh, family in the family room. She nods. I said, pretty crazy. She said, yeah, pretty crazy. I said, do you know why? She said, I think so. She said, they've decided that that my real hurt and their hurt comes from the fact that I know that I'm dying. So whenever they're around, I don't know. At Mm -hmm. seven, that's what she said. Mm. I said, oh, okay, well... I don't have much to add. You pretty much got it nailed down. 
I don't know how you pull that off, but I've seen it happen. When they're around, you're not dying. You're fine. Yeah. But there's this thing that's just come up. It's just mm. come up just today. So see if you can help me with it. It goes like this. They're pretty sure that the thing that's most wrong about all this is you don't get to live a full life. And she looked at me and I, the only way I can translate the look was, um, what happened to adults? Something like that. What happened to you guys on the way to adulthood that you can come up with this kind of thing? I'm not saying that she was thinking that, but it was it was in the mix, clearly. It, it just made no sense what I had said. And the strange thing was, it did make sense to me, who was not so afflicted, but it made no sense to her, the one that we were attributing the affliction to, none. So I actually had to explain the notion of a full life. Well, there's this idea that everybody gets to do a whole lot of stuff. I said, look, anyway, I can't really make sense of it for you, but I'm going to ask you to do this. I got a full piece of full scap here and I got a pen. So can you just give me an example, like say three examples of the full life that both of us know that you've had at seven. So she just looks off and said, fine, whatever I got to do to get this guy gone. <laughs> so, so she says, his matcha breath. <laughs> right. She said, I rode a horse one time. See, she's completely in the groove immediately. I rode a horse one time and I rode it down dutifully rode a horse one time. Okay. Second one. She said, I fell off. She said, I said, well, that's the alpha and omega of a full <laughs> life right there. You, you on a horse, you're off the horse. Yeah. The whole thing is happens between those two things. But I said, you know, three, I don't know why three is a magic number, but if you can just give me one more, she said, okay. She said, um, this happened just before I came in here. Uh, there's a neighbor boy lives right beside us. He's never spoken to me. I think he's cute. And, but I don't know what to say to him either. So sometimes we just sit there and nobody will say anything. And that happened when I knew I was coming in here. And as we were sitting there saying nothing together, I looked over and I saw there was a fly on his cheek, which I could not tolerate for a second. So I reached over to brush the fly off his cheek. And as I did so, he turned and my fingers brushed across his cheek, just touched him. That's that write was it down. Third. Yeah. See, so I wrote that shit down. That's <laughs> good, right? And I'm thinking, oh Lord, how am I going to deliver this one? But anyway, yeah. I thanked her very much and said uh, that was ample evidence of a full life. Clearly, yeah. I went back to the to the room. I read him the first one. Half the room dissolved. Read him the second one. Other half of the room dissolved. I didn't even get to the third one, and in my judgment, I didn't think anybody could handle it. So I didn't even really tell the third one. And that the reason I'm telling you the story is because the real poverty is the notion of fullness, that it's that a full life constitutes volume and is measured by years. And there's nothing to that replicates or or how should I put it uh, or um, soothes the savage beast of premature uh, departure from the scene. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an awful uh, calumny that that gathers around this thing and 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 sadly it manifests in, in your line of work with the if you can you should uh, mandate right if it's available and I know these things are being questioned now more than they were 10 or 15 years ago and 
I mean, I guess at the, at some level, that's better than it was. But man, I mean, you know, the 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 operator's manual for trying to help people includes them recognizing in what you're doing helpfulness. Yeah. And when that doesn't translate, you know, you you have a fundamental breakdown in a in a mutually shared understanding. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We're not here to make sure your kid doesn't die as they die. But you know, how do you, how do you actually say it? Yeah. But you've got to say it. You've got to find 15 different ways to arrive at exactly the same declaration. Mm. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, by virtue of the power vested in all of us as uh, insightful people and compassionate people and technically capable people, we have no right to do what all of us wishes we could do right? because of the, the means by which we would try to do it. Mm. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, I mean, we turn so many kids and not just kids, so many dying kids into little Lazaruses. You know, where they have to die again, then they have to die again, then they have to get close again, you know what I mean? And then, and then back to it and back to us. And only then can we feel like we, we've given them a good death, whatever that means. Yeah. 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 Because they've, they've died. So they've, they've approached it so frequently. Mm. I mean, that would never stand up to any kind of medical, juridical, legal scrutiny, that situation, if it were laid bare the way we've just said it back and forth here. Yeah, we've obliged right. these these kids to die indefensibly too often. Yeah, once is hard enough from everything I've seen. Yeah, once will do. I've heard you use the uh, the phrase citizenship malpractice, which I thought was a really beautiful phrase. And I think when I heard you say it, you were applying it to this dereliction of duty. You observe this during this COVID pandemic thing, and. I wanted to read a quote because this is actually directly related to to these really hard conversations that we that we have but don't have at the same time um, as it pertains to childbirth death. And I also want to add, you know, some something I've specialized in is let's say you get like a really life limiting diagnosis in the middle of pregnancy, like an aneuploidy, like trisomy eighteen. There's all these cardiac defects, and we know that this baby is probably going to die in the uterus. But if the baby is born, Who's going to have the conversation around a comfort-focused death of the baby? Or do we just do everything, like you said, so that the baby doesn't just die in uterus because we've supplied some intervention? And then at, at birth, the baby doesn't die. We supply some intervention until at the very end of the road, whoever determines that, who, who knows who's going to determine that, right? But as soon as we realize we've tried everything, then, only then, can we pass the buck and say, hey, it's it's okay for the baby to die, and so I, I just wanted to add that in there. But let's let's get into dereliction of of duty. I'm going to read a quote from a, a, a another interview you did. If there was ever a time, this is pertaining to um, the opportunity lost through COVID, because I think that these past couple years was an it was an incredible opportunity that was completely we completely dropped the ball. If there was ever a time crafted by something seemingly divine to give us a chance to more or less voluntarily voluntarily rein it in, to recognize the unsustainable finally for what it is, and at the 11th hour and 55th minute with our feet on the precipice to step back, this would have been such a time, and it's abundantly clear that that did not happen, is not happening, will not happen. Our death phobia is so adroit and so agile in the dominant culture of North America 
that we took the realities of COVID-19 and seconded them to our death phobia such that death phobia was more prevalent and more consequential in most of our lives than the opportunities that the crisis promised. And that is tragic beyond measure. Beautifully, I, I couldn't have said anything better myself. I probably never will say anything better. Um, can you reflect on that, Stephen? Maybe now that we're a couple years past the the outbreak of this thing, but you know what we're talking about with birth and death and these these two opportunities in a in a woman's life specifically to face mortality that is adroitly and deftly kind of stepped aside in the name of medical intervention at all costs. How do you feel about that that quote now that you hear that? I don't think much has changed, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. Well, I'm proud of it. I have to say that. I, I'm, I'm proud of the, the nerve that's in there. Hmm. You know, when the, the lion's share of interviews, apropos of COVID-19, have all, all along been, so when we get on the other side of this, so when, you know, right. when things get back to normal, when, when, and I'm asking them, what kind of normal you got in mind? Yeah, right. Let me right. help you. Let me help you because right. I know what you're thinking. It's called 2019. 2019 pre-onset is now deemed to be the great high watermark of our cultural achievement. The that's good old what, days. That's what freedom is. Yeah, yeah. You know, before face rags and all that. No, <clears throat> sadly, when you have a culture that's fundamentally rooted in competence addiction mm. my phrase and uh, and the competence addiction is never challenged it's replaced by other competences but it's never challenged as a fundament and then something comes along that beggars your competence and that nobody you know with maybe the chomskys of the world but aside from them not many people saw coming mm-hmm. okay what do you call it? Most people call it a crisis, a catastrophe, a calamity. And then the people, the kind of opportunists might view it as some kind of, um, you know, sort of med tech uh, innovation period where everything gets, and it, me, how did it occur to me? I, I can't make sense out of, of the, the quote that you just read. If I don't return to the understanding that COVID-19 was a God, not like a God, not God-like, not Godish, a God for real, divine for real, not benign. There's nothing benign about the divine. Last I checked, it's a ramshackling proposition. There's reasons that most of the world's religions say, if you get a chance to be in God's presence. Whatever you do, don't look in the face. Hmm. Keep your eyes closed. I mean, there's a lots of instruction, never mind yeah. warning, instruction about how to conduct yourself in the presence of the divine. And most of them are, whatever you do, under function and say amen a lot. <laughs> and that's what could have happened. Yeah. What we could have done is say, whoa, I mean, what? While people are asphyxiating on the street corner, which which was starting to happen, and certainly in China in, in those early days, and 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 the the unnervedness became apparent very and available very quickly. If we had cultural leaders, those cultural leaders should have been in the position of advocating for the limits that we were trying to deke 
by developing the new vaccines. Don't get me wrong. Glad, glad for the vaccine. I'm just coming out of COVID right now, actually. Yeah. yeah. I've had it for the last nine days or so. That's what the coughing's coming from still. And I know if I'd have got one of those early strains, I wouldn't be talking to you now. I'd be dead almost, almost certainly because of my own pulmonary predispositions. And uh, I, I was living in dread of that shit, I have to say. Absolute dread. But the dread didn't, wasn't, how should I put it? It was personal enough, all right. But it wasn't damning enough that I lost sight of what the moment I was in. Yeah. Involuntarily. And the moment could have been this. There's a sign on the road ahead. Be prepared to stop or be stopped instead. <laughs> there's, there's your options, baby. Yeah. So if you're, if you're big on freedom, you have to understand that even your freedom is obliged occasionally to obey limits. Yeah. This is one of those times. So I'm at the farm where virtually nothing changed. We were socially isolating before the pandemic and all during it. But there's no chemtrail in the sky. There's no rumble in the distance on the, on the, the highway and so on. And I'm thinking to myself, this, my friend, is a hundred-year-old silence you're hearing. That's how long it's been since it was this quiet. Holidays, the whole kit and caboodle, add it all in. It was never this quiet. As soon as we could make the noise, we did. Yeah. Now, now we're not making the noise. Listen, if you will, because people are going to miss this too. Hmm. And the desperateness will drive them to the known, not the unknown, to the known. That's what happened. So I, 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 it's so, I mean, it's sacrilegious, frankly, the, um, the solution mania. And the, the abject lack of, you know, proper direction from, you know, politically speaking or otherwise from on high. Yeah. The whole thing is so unspeakably tragic and so insanely predictable that we, we've, been, we've maintained a consistency of response through this thing that, is, that will be looked upon in years to come. If there's anybody who wants to give a shit about us yeah. in 50 or 75 years, but it'll be looked upon as... What were they thinking? Yeah. Were they thinking? Do you call that thinking anymore? When it's that by rote, what is it? What is it now? Is it, a, is it the, the worst of the Darwinian anticipation come to roost? Is it did, because we all didn't die, did we win? Is that, is that what it means? So it's, uh, it's heart, the truancy is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's it's not anger making for me personally. Um, I can get angry with the best of them over the matter, but ultimately there's no there's no solution for heartbreak. There shouldn't be. Heart heartbreak is a visitation of life, you know, not not into life, of life. Yeah. For those of us who are adamantly inanimistic. Hmm. In our orientation to to life, yeah, and many of us are, yeah. Well, I'm sad yeah. to say. I mean, I don't find much in the way of animism as I, you know, traipse the countryside. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, we we very categorically reserve the word alive for people who look like us, hmm. not even all people, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, right. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> no. 
as soon as you get past human and our food, then the allegation of alive starts to fall off mm. drastically. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the way I'd sort of sum it up, I guess, is, is um, we, we had a chance to be stopped and to say yes. I know we didn't choose it, but that's not the point. The point is we were given a chance. It borders on the God given to me from everything I can tell. We didn't go looking for it. We got it anyway. What do you call that? Hmm. You know, we had a chance to get it right. We didn't have to vote yes to get it. We didn't have to go through a process. It was right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's not there now. Yeah. And it was gone in, I I think, in the first six months. Yeah. Yeah. Came and it went during that period. Yeah, we, we live our lives, whether it's in birth and in death, we, we live our lives through the lens of entitlements. You know, when you get pregnant, you're entitled to have a baby. You're entitled to have a baby that goes to Harvard or whatever. I mean, that's kind of it. And uh, I think, I think um, as a condition of that, um, of this entitlement, we, we, we sort of perceive death and birth as a... a if we're going to reflect on progress through the Anglo-North American lens, it's how well can we can we avoid our own nature how how I, I, how um how well can we perform our role as the defenders of human as a contrast to our own nature right and i do think that this experience with covid was a an a blaring glaring example of that but I don't think people were willing to look. I don't think that people were willing to see that because it, instead of us forcing our missiles outward on an enemy, it would have required us to look inward, to look in the mirror and to say, there's something wrong with my position and, uh, and perhaps the way that everybody is talking about this. And I think that's why the opportunity was lost. It would have required us to look inward, really deeply inward as to what this opportunity means. And I think that it's very confronting. It's sort of like holding a mirror up for somebody who's being an asshole. And now they can see themselves being an asshole. They don't want to see themselves like that. But sometimes we do need to hold that mirror up. <laughs> you know, we've got human. You've just brought it up. We've got the word human yeah. available to us. We use it, I, I think, I mean, I'm grossly generalizing here to, to make this point. But so at least some of us will use the word pretty either uncritically or, or critically. So we use it as an estimation of um, worthiness, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Or we put the word only in front of it. Now, what's the function of the word human? When you put only, you, you build in a kind of grace period for getting it right. Is that, is that yeah. what we are? Yeah, right. The only human. But wait, yeah. then we got this other arrangement, this other word in the English language. We put an E on the end of the word human. Is it a synonym now? What does that word mean? Why do we even have it? Yeah, you're right. The word human means inevitably occurring, naturally occurring. Can't, excuse the language, fuck it up. Uh, It's ours. It belongs to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's inalienable, right? It's a right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If all of that's true about human, where do humane come from? I ask. Yeah. And one of the things that occurs to me is we we just can't fess up to how malingering our achievements around our understanding what constitutes human actually are. I mean, 
we are so lazy in the manner of the inner life and especially the language of rights that's come that's arisen you know over the last three or four or five years has put the the lock on sloth on emotional and intellectual sloth no doubt in my mind whatsoever yeah you, you got human at your disposal man you don't even need to think yeah Right, right. It's like the ultimate trump card for, pardon the French, but the ultimate trump card. Yeah. You know, I was thinking very, you know, I know you got to go in a few minutes. I was thinking back to that baby who, um, you know, was born without a trachea, for example, to say, let's say that we did have some solution. Like somebody in the hospital had a great idea. We're going to MacGyver a a fake trachea or something. Sure. And then they said, we we can do this for that baby. And somebody says, well, wait a second. I don't know if that sounds like a good idea. Uh, and they'd say to not do it would be inhumane, right. meaning that in the animal world, let's take a, I don't know, a, a lion pride, right? A baby's born in the lion pride. The lions all, all realize that this baby's not going to live and they love this lion. They lick their lion, their cub, and the cub passes away. So what we were doing with this terminology, you just, you just kind of unlock something for me, is we're distinguishing ourselves from nature without realizing that we, we ourselves are a part of nature. This is our, uh, th- this deft running away, hiding from the conversation around our own mortality is really, I think, a, a nice way to wrap everything up. I'm not sure that we are as in- unerringly human mm. as the characterization would suggest. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And, yeah. and I, It's like I a misnomer. <laughs> the reason I'm saying that is because I'm not persuaded by your allegation that we are, quote, part of nature. Hmm. Now, I, I think I know what you meant by suggesting it. Yeah. Right? You meant it more as a plea, frankly, than as a description, I think. Because if you go about, you know, the rest of your day looking for examples of humans as a naturally occurring event, you're going to be looking, you know, in Hill and Dale for, yeah. for yeah. half a dozen examples. In other words, I'm going to suggest to you now that modernity has come to the point where our participation in the natural is optional hmm. and we opt out of it much more frequently right. than we opt into it. Right. right. That's right. Okay. And, th- and this is the, the, the growth shortcoming of our language around natural, naturally occurring meant to be, or get ready for it. The non-secular version of, Meant meant to be is the non is the secular version of God's will. Mm, right, right. That right. that was heavy language until not that long ago. God's will is that. I mean, I got this all the time. God's will is that uh, is that my husband is still here. But how did your husband is still here? Because what we did to him for the last six months. Yeah. <laughs> Are you suggesting that the medical establishment is God's will? Mm. I mean, is that is that literally what you're down to? And the answer, more often than not, was yes. Yeah. So what we can do becomes natural. If we can rescue somebody from the slings and arrows of outrageous birth circumstance, then we're, we, we, we stand the chance of providing them a natural life. Hmm. But there's nothing in our understanding of natural that includes dying kids, though. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so, right. so then you got to make up your mind. Dying kids is natural or, or, or is it? As natural, the same thing as leave it the hell alone. Show it some respect. Take a knee for God's sake. Yeah. You know, in the face of your capacities. Right. Well, I mean, 
good luck passing an ethics review board by taking a knee. Yeah. See what I mean? So, yeah. so at the, at the level of, of, of sort of legal liability, you know, your profession, I mean, we just, we citizens, we, you know, the normal walking wounded in this arrangement can't conceivably look to you guys for something like an even handed uh, rendering of the dilemma you and I are talking about now. It's, it's inconceivable. It's yeah. not the right thing. It's, it's criminal to expect it. Yeah. yeah. And so this is where all the allegations are pointing the finger at the white coats and everything, stethoscopes and all of that and big pharma and blah, blah, blah. And that's the easiest stone to hurl for people who are not instantly uh, recognizable as part of the quote problem. Right. Yeah. It's so degradingly uh, cheap and it doesn't even acknowledge the obvious, which is this. When we need you, you're God. Right. As soon as it suits us to question your orientation or that it doesn't go along with ours, who are you now? Yeah. You're an obstacle to God's will. That's who you become like that. So I've often been mistaken being somehow anti-medicine. That's just ludicrous. I mean, read anything that I've come up with, anything I put to paper. I wouldn't be alive. I mean, I had spinal meningitis when I was three and a half years old. This is in the late 1950s. My friend, I wouldn't be talking to you without yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Right. I remember being in, in the collapsed lung chamber. I remember distinctly, you know, and and I'm a beneficiary. And as a beneficiary, I feel my obligation is to be absolutely three-dimensional about what you're up against, professionally speaking. Yeah. You don't need any defenders. Yeah. But, but the odd commentator who's even-handed wouldn't be unwelcome. Right. Well, I, mean, I guess the, the change I would love to see within the, the medical system, since we're on the topic, and I, I know you have to go, but um, the, the change I would love to see is that, yes, we have all these great tools. Yes, we can play God. We can, we, we can, we can puff our chest and walk with our white coats like these, these angels down the hallway, right? And, and do all of these amazing things. And with a little additional massaging, perhaps we can also perhaps develop the language and start practicing the language like you and I have, have been using as in the death trade, so to speak, yeah. that may also help a person who has come to us, who sees us as only this or that, depending on what their circumstances are, good or evil, mm. as helping them to broaden their experience within the healthcare system and acknowledging sometimes when these tools maybe aren't the right tools to use. Instead, a conversation, connection, compassion become our primary scalpels and antibiotics. I think that that's not too much to ask of our medical education system with how much money we spend in, on medicine, especially in the United States. But, you know, that might be another conversation for another time, Stephen. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm certainly with you on... But our, our great dilemma, sadly, is, I think, irreversible, man. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it as if it could be otherwise in this conversation. I, for one, I'm not persuaded that it's going to be otherwise, though. Why not? Because, you know, we've got a track record now. That when we establish a certain degree of material and mechanical capability, that sets a standard that's not negotiable any longer. And it just pushes forward yeah. what we can do. Yeah. The cost of doing all we can do is rarely talked about. Mm. 
And I don't mean the, 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 the monetary cost in the system, though God knows it's obscene. I'm talking about the, the consequence for understanding of human right. and humane and natural. The consequences there for the high-tech interventions that are available are incalculable, mm. sadly, and they're not part of the consideration. Yeah. And there's so many times people were not told the rest of the story. Yeah. Why not? Because it was too difficult. It's too difficult to tell them that there's a distinct downside to what we're proposing to do to you. And the downside is, is on the borders on the ineffable. Yeah. Right. It's not going to register upon you as downside. Right. And so now we're, we're trying to sell you on a sensitivity that you're obliged to engage in. If you agree to let us do what we're proposing to do to you. Right. Right. What? Where? I mean, you got to be a philosopher. You do have to be a philosopher. Absolutely. You do. We, we, we need medical philosophers like you who've, who who've are thoughtful about this. And, and like you said, I mean, even for people who come in my world, I, I'm, a, I'm a very, I, I promote home birth. I advocate for, you know, as, as a nat, you know, natural, there's that word again, but as, as sort of a anti-establishment maternity care as I possibly can, because this to me is not a medical process, nor is it a pregnancy, a disease. And when people are like, let's burn the system down, it's like, you don't get it. The system is playing a completely different game. They have a separate set of rules altogether. So to expect them to conform to this language that you and I are using, I don't think that that's actually reasonable. I don't, I think we're, it's not even fair to ask them to dip their toes into the water because they didn't even get the guidebook. They didn't even, they've been reading the different, a different playbook this whole time. Right. Yeah. A kind of psychic Grey's anatomy is what they have. <laughs> right. Right. Well, Stephen, I know you got to run. Um, thank you so much. Real quickly, one one quick one-off question. Um, yeah. Well, two. One is we got a, a car ride ahead, so I, I want to know what's an album you want us to listen to in the car to to remember you by. But secondly, what's something you've changed your mind about recently? Maybe it, maybe that's one and the same. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh well, the the record. I mean, I got three records out because I got a band, and and that's what I'm doing here now is working on some set lists and things. So uh, let's let's a, do it. Self promote. Okay. <laughs> that merch. The the there's a piece on the last record called um, the tears in things. In post production, maybe you can patch it in here. Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. It is, if I may say, a remarkable meditation on many of the themes we've talked about, and it hovers around the death of my mother in the hospital, and. The intervent the certain the certain kind of ministrations of a particular nurse. Mm. That's what it's about. Okay. So anyway, I would recommend that. And then what have I changed my mind on lately? I don't know that you can change your mind. I think what happens is your mind gets changed. I don't think you can lay a lot of claim for it. Maybe you can roll over, you know, when the change becomes apparent or incontrovertible. Yeah, there's well, I, I've had a remarkable opportunity to to buy and and bring over to my farm an old barn 120 year old barn wow it was slated for demolition or incineration and it's in the process of being restored at my place hopefully for another 100 years as a barn and not some rich guy's event space yeah <laughs> that's my intention anyway i'm going to put that in the will no events allowed no events allowed here <laughs> you know and i'm saying you know, I was lucky enough to to have some 
monetary success before the the shutdown and uh, this is where it's gone and uh i feel lucky that in a time that's post agriculture basically mm-hmm. you know, it's not interested in any kind of food sovereignty at all i can make a little revolution in the form of restoring this building and then having sheep in it again it, 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 I don't know if it changed my mind, but it's but it's it's a good companion to everything that we're talking about. Yeah, that you can make a move, a material move in this world that doesn't translate immediately into any kind of restitution. Yeah, but I'm kind of I've been in the redemption business for a long time. I didn't know it would take the form of building a barn, but it has. Yeah, Stephen, very grateful for your time today. Um, I wish you well on the road. We will um, we'll have some of your music playing. And uh, it's Greg Hoskins and the and Stephen Jenkinson, right? That's how I would find it from That's Rough right. Gods. Rough Gods is the name of the album. Great. Oh, Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, I'll I'll connect with Natalie and we'll put some other promo materials, things you want people to know about, in the show description. Very grateful for your time, my friend. And yours too. Thank thanks you. for making it, man. And thanks for this for indulging the scramble at the beginning. Oh no! Yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah, it's okay, my pleasure. Bye bye. I'll see you. Thank you. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. You have no idea what an honor it is to interview somebody that you whose work you've admired for so long and has has been such a source of light and love through your own tribulations. And that's exactly who Stephen is for me. Thank you, Stephen, for spending some time with me today. If you want to find more of Stephen's work, go to orphanwisdom.com. You can find all of his books. He's written at least six books. Die Wise was my favorite, but How It All Could Be, Come of Age, A Generation's Worth, in his new book, of course, The Reckoning, which he co-authored with Kimberly Ann Johnson, another amazing woman who's going to be um, coming on the show as well. You can find all of that there, as well as his music. He he tours with the Gregory Hoskins Band and does recitations while the band is playing in musical accompaniment. In fact, if you listen through this uh, this outro, I'm going to be trailing off. Instead of my normal outro music, I'm going to be playing a song called Shadow and uh, Shadow Beauty Bereft from an album called Dark Roads by Stephen Jenkinson and Gregory Hoskins. Just play a short snippet. It's a 13 and a half minute song, but it's beautiful. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy that. You can find all of Stephen's work again at orphanwisdom.com. Um, if you want to catch them on tour, they're coming to Louisville in November. They have a world tour. That's the Knights of Grief and Mystery World Tour. So um, there are <laughs> plenty of opportunities to see them live. Uh, we're definitely going to be seeing them when they come to, to Louisville. Thanks to our sponsors. They make this show possible from the back end. Fit for Birth provides pregnancy and postpartum specific nutrition and coaching and exercise coaching. If you're pregnant or postpartum and you want some specific advice from a Fit for Birth professional, go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You can also go to that website if you're a coach looking to deepen their toolkit. Remember, we can customize coaching for pregnancy and postpartum, but you need to put in the work to fine-tune your skills in order to personalize that care. If you're, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing CrossFit or whatever, if you haven't done specific pregnancy and postpartum training, you could hurt somebody. You have no idea how to work with the specific physiologic changes that happen in pregnancy, but fit-for-birth professionals do. So, so go to getfitforbirth.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on all their offerings, regardless of which approach you're coming at the, their program. Bioptimizers, 
They make one of the best sleep aids on the market. I'm going to be taking their magnesium breakthrough tonight, two tablets, 30 minutes before bed. I'm going to fall asleep more easily, wake up more rested. And if you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN, the more bottles you buy through that website, which by the way is an automatic 10% discount applied, the more freebies you get, including their mass Symes, digestive aid, their P3RM, the, the Navy Seal of probiotics, and HCL breakthrough, which will help to decrease reflux symptoms and heartburn. Again, that's magbreakthrough.com slash holistic OBGYN. And last but not least, Organifi. Their vanilla protein is a game changer. After my workout, I'll take a scoop of that, which has 20 grams of plant-based protein from seeds and other plant sources. It has some digestive enzymes included and some organic coconut milk. The digestive enzymes make it so that you don't get that like lump in your stomach like you do with a lot of protein powders. It doesn't make you all bloated and you're gassy and all of this. It's broken down much more readily so that it can be absorbed from your guts into your inte- into your blood. I can't recommend these guys enough. I don't take sponsors easily. Like it's really hard for me to find companies that I'm fully in alignment with. And Drew Canoli at Organifi, Wade Lightheart at Bioptimizers, and James Goodlatte at Fit for Birth are all very much in alignment with my practice, which is why I've invited them to come on as sponsors. It is important to have financial backing for the show, but it's far more important to be producing a show with integrity. And I have no qualms whatsoever about supporting these three brands. So support them so they can keep supporting us. Show them some love out there. Remember, this show is a 501c3. None of it is is medical advice. It's all educational. But if you do want medical advice or want to join my team, my private practice, go to belovedholistics.com. You can join my private association. It's a $43 annual donation to be in my practice. Like that's cheaper than Costco. (laughs) And you've got a, a, a nearly triple board certified physician here that's going to be on your team. If you want one-off consultations as a client, I do that. I do package per packages that I sell for uh, for far, far less money than doing one-off consultations, one after the other. And then also, if you're a coach, a check practitioner, any type of medical professional, especially a midwife, you can, for a reasonable fee, join my um, monthly monthly donation. You can join my collaborator program and have an MD consultant in your corner to, to review anything to help you with counseling, clinical decision-making, reviewing labs, imaging, etc. That's all available at belovedholistics.com. If you have any questions, you can also reach out through the website. And one last thing you can do to help me out here is go to that smartphone in your pocket right now. Go to iTunes or Spotify. Leave a five-star review. Those algorithms only care about your five-star reviews. And uh, the more of those we get, the higher we rise in the rankings and the more love I can continue to deliver through these amazing interviews. All right, guys, I will see you next time with Maddie Miles. We're going to be talking about a holistic approach to hormone balancing. She's a board-certified herbalist, knows what she's doing. I'm super stoked. I'm super stoked for you to hear that interview. Okay, let's hear a little bit of Shadow Beauty Bereft from the Dark Roads uh, Dark Roads album by Stephen Jenkinson and Gregory Hoskins. I will see you all next time on the Holistic Abijuan podcast. Take care, everybody. Takes me away back home.
Alza la frente en alto y camina bien, alza la frente en alto, alza la frente en alto y camina, alza la frente en alto. 